Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Legendarium Podcast. Today is another Author's Shelf episode, one that I'm pretty excited for because uh, we have returning guests, Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. And I got to say, you might be the quickest returning guests that I can think of in a long time. So I'm really pleased that you guys came back so soon. Welcome. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. We're pleased to be here. And last time you were here, uh, Sharon and Steve, we talked about um, we talked about space opera as a concept and uh, as a genre, and what right. questions kind of arise when we consider it as its own genre, separate from science fiction and all of that. So people should go check out that episode. Uh, partly because today we're talking about one of your favorite space operas. Uh, if we, I don't know, maybe we can get into how we classify this book. <laughs> but we're going to be we're going to be talking about Hellspark, or is it Hell's Park, or is it Hell's, Hell's Park? Park or, yes. uh, <laughs> so we're going to be talking about Hellspark, uh, the book by Janet Kagan. This is a 1988 novel. Um, and Sharon, you pointed out to me that she's something of a contemporary of yours because the first Lee Aiden book came out in February of 88. And this one just a few months later. So um, we will talk about Hellspark. But before we do, I just want to remind everybody to go to thelegendarium.com. Check out past episodes there. Check out the calendar with future episodes, links to Discord. Uh, links to Patreon. And if you are listening to this before February of 2024, then there's also an RSVP page for our 10th anniversary meetup happening near the Salt Lake area. Well, if any of you are, uh, if any of you listening are able to make it out and you have, uh, you know, friends on the Discord server or whatever, you should come out. It's going to be an amazing weekend. All right. With all of that out of the way, Sharon and Steve, we're talking about Hellspark. Uh, by Janet Kagan. And I'll shoot you the, the first question that I ask every author that comes on the author's shelf, but I'm, I'm going to set this one up. The question is, why did you choose this book? But <laughs> the, <laughs> and it always elicits an interesting answer, right? But if, if I look at the cover of the latest edition by Bain, Mm -hmm. You have blurbed this book. And so right at the top of the, the front cover, it says, one of our very favorite novels in any genre. If you have not read Hellspark, you must do so immediately. It's that good. Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. Right. So you've already answered my question with a, a nice blurbable version. But let me, <laughs> let me ask you ver verbally, why did you choose this book? Why did you want to read this one? I, because... Um... Though we write together, our favorite books don't always overlap. Mm. Um, we, they do in this case. But in this case, it's like, this is a great book. We both think so. Um, both of us like Georgette Hare, but within Georgette Hare's um, oeuvre, we have different we have different favorites. I like the Masqueraders. Mm. He likes the Toll House. I asked you, <laughs> how could you like the Toll House? Uh, um, so, but this this one is, we both agree, and I'm pretty sure we agree for different reasons that, yeah. it's, that it's a great book. Interesting. Um, well, okay, let's start with you, Sharon, then. Why, um, when, when we reach out to you and say, hey, we want to do an author's shelf, you can pick a book that is interesting or, uh, or influential in some way. It, it's, it's important to you in some way, and you choose this book, Sharon. Why would you say... I want to do Hellspark. Why is it that good to you? Well, for one thing, I think it's overlooked. Um, it came out in 1988. 
And speaking as an author whose first book came out in 1988, there was a lot of science fiction being thrown out at that point in mass market paperback, 395. They were cheap, they were easy. Um, and I mean, this cover, who's going to buy this cover? What's it about? <laughs> this is the, the original 88 the cover of just kind of a tour generic spacescape. Spacescape, yes. Um, and it's not at all, I mean, yes, it's, it's space opera. It takes place sort of in space. Um, it takes place, it's, it's about people. It's okay. about people. It's about how we get along. It's about how we don't get along. It's about how our cultures separate us more than almost anything else. Our preconceived um, ideas that are baked into our language. I mean, mm. it, is a, it is a really remarkable study of, of culture and how people can get past their culture to get along. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you say language, and one of the things that, uh, that this book hammers home is that language means so much more than the words you speak. Yes. It includes that, obviously. Mm -hmm. uh, but there are so many little things that we do um, that communicate non-verbally. Uh, so I, I remember when I was working as a banker in Seattle, I had a lot of um, folks opening up accounts who were coming in as Amazon or Microsoft employees from India and China. Uh, so I worked with a lot of these clients and it took me a little while to figure out that the Indian clients that I had were not shaking their heads at me. No, they were kind of, they do the, the head wiggle that, that, you know, it's kind of a yes or a nod or a go continuing on, the conversation. Yeah. Go on. Uh, and I was like, why are they always shaking their heads at me? You know, it took me a minute to figure all that stuff out. I used to um, I used to work in a modern languages department at a university, mm. and I have actually seen people, Janet talks about um, dancing your language, and I have actually seen people going from English to Spanish. You go from English to Spanish, you step closer, because oh, right. a Spanish speaker wants to be close enough that they can touch you. Um, you go from Spanish to French, they step back. Yep. It's, it's really marked, um, and she did a great job. That's fascinating. Well, let me kick the question to you then, Steve. All right, so we know what Sharon thinks of this, but why would you pick this book? Well, partly it it's from the personal connection. Um, we we knew uh, we knew Janet, and I had known her, in fact, lo longer. I'm pretty sure than Sharon, and I had been involved in conversations at conventions um, where some of these topics had had come up. Some of the things that filtered into, uh, <clears throat> filtered into Housepark. And it was good to see her voice showing these things uh, in, in, in a lot of ways. It was good to see that she managed to, to grab that. And her uh, Housepark came out a couple, six months after, after our book, after um, Agent of Change. And we covered some of the same uh, topics, actually, if you want to use t uh, the difference in cultures and, and how people misread, and which is one of the which makes it a fine uh, a fine example to use with Georgette Heyer because she she frequently used the the misread word, the misread understanding, the misread, and uh, but Janet was using some of those same same things, but she wasn't after uh, drama. Per, I'm trying to, how do I want to put it? Comedy. Yeah, she, she wasn't after comedy and she wasn't after 
uh, cheap drama. She was after the kinds of things of people being extremely involved. And the, the characters in the book uh, relate to each other incredibly well. And that was that was part of what she was doing. And that was part of what we were trying to do. Uh, Sharon will tell you, in fact, she did tell you, I'm pretty sure, that one of the things that uh, drove us when we were writing the early Leaden books in particular was to make sure that there were uh, love interest. There was some something that was romance and it wasn't just people want, wandering around shooting things. And, and not even just romance, just, just connection between people. Um, and um, Janet, Janet did a lot of that. Uh, House Park was a, was a great example. Uh, there's something else in 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 the book uh, <clears throat> that that dates us. It dates me. It dates Sharon. It dates it dates Janet. And she mentioned it in the uh, I think in the afterward that's in the Misha Merlin book. I think that it, it was left out of the uh, the tour information. <laughs> uh, some a number of things were left out of what uh, the tour book, but the afterwards and in, in the um, in Hellspark, in the Misha Merlin edition, includes an afterwards for uh, Yuhura song. song as well, mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. she wanted to get one one of those in. Different, but but the thing that she was mentioning was some of the books that she was considering her sources, and that includes Edward Hall, uh, the Silent Language, uh, Ard Audrey's Audrey's um, uh, Territorial Imperative. And these are these are nonfiction. If you go back that far, these were important books. These were books that were that were striking the heart of the young academic and the uh, where, and the young science fiction and writer, the young yes. science fiction writer and young science in some extent young science fiction readers outlining the the, the problems that culture causes uh, on its own, and um, so. The territorial imperative, which has been somewhat poo-pooed in the in later days, made people think a lot. And so these kind of discussions were, were going on, and they were very popular at the science fiction conventions. Uh, you know, three beers in at three in the morning, um, <laughs> the discussions could get wild and hairy. And, and I think that's part of where uh, Janet got Yeah, House and that's Park. part of the feel of the, of the culture clashes in Hellspark. People coming in and saying, well, of course, you know what I mean. Well, of course, I don't know what you mean. Right. Um, I'm acting like a human being. Why aren't you? Um, <laughs> and one of the um, <clears throat> illustrations that Tokel gives, and now Tokel is a, here we go, once again. There she you wears go. Yeah, a second uh... skin. She has a, she has a moss cloak, and she has spectacles where, she, where her computer can show her things. Um, off of her spectacles. So she is very technologically advanced. And she once went to a place and she asked one of the natives, what's the difference between you and this animal? Um, and he replied that the animal doesn't know when to replenish the fire. And she said, well, you know, I would fail that test because my second skin keeps me warm my spectacles, if it gets dark, will lighten mm. things so I can see it. So clearly I'm an animal. I, I would fail the human test. It, it's a fascinating question that you can come across in almost any, uh, in almost any 
academic discipline, whether it's artistic or scientific, what is it that makes us humans and what sets humans apart? Are we simply animals or are we some of some kind of higher order? Uh, in, and if so, how and why? And it's, uh, it, as you <laughs> kind of illustrate, it's one of those barstool questions that can take you well into the night and many drinks <laughs> later, you're still trying to, to puzzle this out, right? But it, it's it's no less fascinating a question for that. Can I, uh, can I give can I give a little background for the for the readers who are not in, intimately familiar with the book already? I was I was going to do it. I appreciate <clears throat> you doing it. Yes. Okay. Please. Well, I'll, I'll try a little bit. Uh, Hellspark takes place uh, on a planet, and I can't. Is it Lynette? Uh, Flash fever. Flash fever is the planet, but uh, okay. Lasty. So, Lasty. Lasty. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. See, that's it. There, there are so many points um, being raised on where are we, who are we, etc. It takes place on a planet where there are creatures who may or may not be sentient or sapient, mm -hmm. and it takes place where somebody has been called in because there's been a murder. They think there's been a murder. They're not sure there's been a murder. There may have been a murder. And they need to call in somebody who is, is an expert from outside. And this is the, the setting. The setup is already uh, one where you have an outsider who's coming in who is powerful. That is, this, the woman who is coming in uh, is a health Our, our main character. Yeah. Yes, that's Tokel. And that with with her, she brings a lot of training, a lot of information, and she understands when she arrives and sees a situation where there are perhaps 40 people on the planet, 40 humans on the planet, and almost every one of them is from a different group. They're all from different planets. They don't... All different cultures, even so, if they're from the same planet. So, the, And their culture mm. is held together by a, a language, a galactic linguistic um, it's, it's sort of held together that way and it's held together in theory by a common goal and so and she it's, has it's very important at this point to say that Tokel is not a policeman and she is not a detective she's a linguist she's a health and, all, and yet the way the book unfolds uh, you know, I I kept thinking, what if what if Inspector Poirot were a woman with spectacles <laughs> in space, right? Instead of a mustache, it's the glasses, and she's in space, right? <laughs> so so it does it does uh, function as a murder mystery with a detective, even on, if that's on not one technically level, her yes, job. It yeah, it does, and and the the presentation, in fact, Sharon mentioned the that Tokel wears a second skin. And all of the humans on the planet are wearing second skins. The second skins uh, give them all kind of protections that uh, you and I won't have because we don't, we're not able to, to have our second skin help absorb the impact of a, uh, of a branch that, that swings and behind somebody or that kind of thing. Or so the second skin is a very interesting technology. And we have to remember that, uh, or we, can remember if we, we want to get a, a feeling for the era that at the point that Janet was writing, you could not get glasses for your computer that projected mm. onto the glasses information. Now I know people now who have glasses that they can they can use with the little holo things that shoot the information up on 
uh, as they heads up. heads up displays and things like that. But Janet was using fairly forward-looking technology for nineteen figure nineteen eighty-six. Well, when it, she, yeah, it took her five in, years to write it. So nineteen in the nineteen eighties, and um, so she was using very um, forward-looking technology, uh, and she she used it well. She made it a natural part of the story too. And they have computers. They have computers. But one of the things that endeared me this this time as I was just going through it to refresh myself was that someone wants to wants to plan a um, decorative planning. He's going to landscape an area. And he rushes off to get a pad of paper and a pen to sketch it. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah, there, and, there are... It makes Come you wonder, on. you know, some things never change. Would this be one of them? You know, well, maybe. Tough to say. So the, the, the world is, we do not see a great space battle. I'm sorry. That's a, I'm sure that's a, a, <laughs> an, un, an unfortunate um, mistake on my part to tell people and there are no great space battles in this. Uh, that doesn't mean that space is not referenced, but it does not take place per se Inter in a in a place where you're swinging around space the spaceship. Is, space is in the way almost. It's <laughs> yes. like, because it's it's, <clears throat> it's one of those things where as I was reading through this, um, it, it's almost a. I felt like I was reading a purer science fiction than say something like uh, Star Trek. Okay, mm -hmm. and the reason I say that is because I it took me a while to get my bearings in the book, and this happens with a lot of speculative fiction right you're you're world building you're introducing people and places and things that the reader has never heard of so it's going to take a while to to get your bearings but when you have something like uh star trek you're given these characters like uh what's his name jim kirk okay mm -hmm. my name is jim kirk and i went to the academy in san francisco <laughs> and i may be in space but i'm your earthling i'm your your vehicle into this story where we don't have any of that it's no. uh, you're no, totally unmoored. Deep end. Yeah, exactly. You're totally unmoored from any earth experience or names for that matter. And mm -hmm. so you're given all these names and titles and a dozen different cultures that you need to at least be somewhat familiar with as you're going through the story. Uh, and it's it, so when I say a purer distillation of sci-fi, I just mean you don't get any of those helps that you often do with others where there's an, an earthling off spacefaring, right? Is that fair? Yeah, well, that's it's, fair. It's fair. Um, a lot of, you're going to wander off now into how you do novels. Um, back, in, back in the day, <laughs> um, back in the day, throwing people into the deep end was how it was done. Mm -hmm. um, hey, a lot of, a lot of fantasy did, writers do that now. So. Okay. And you figure it out as you go along. Mm -hmm. um, television, the visual stuff still tends to give you a way in, a, a, an easy path in, and part of that's because it's visual. Um, and people have sort of come to expect that in novels. They want to know everything before you tell them, and they, you, you can't do that. No, no. <laughs> right. It, it, it just struck me as we were speaking that... Um, in a way, Janet uh, prefigures and, and and again was a contemporary of uh, the early C.J. Cherry, who did a lot of those kinds of things with, with her story. Until she started with Foreigner, and then she gave you the most naive narrator she could and just eased you in for 30, for 30 books now. <laughs> <laughs> Still being eased in, yes. But 
But again, she did that um, in a, any number of her, her books, even in the quote unquote same universe, effectively. Uh, Cuckoo's Egg, for example. Oh, yeah. um, the ones that are told from the alien's viewpoint. You just, you just, you're on your own, pal. And, <laughs> Figure and it it's out. A, it's, a, it's, a, it's a similar, um, a similar approach to the story. Of course, we were telling uh, at the same, around the same time, we were trying to tell stories that were romance and partnership, action adventure. Action adventure. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that was our in, that was our intent and. Uh, Janet was exploring other things, including the entire question of communication and how do we communicate and what is a communication? Mm, oh boy, there's a, there's a question for the linguist in me. And, and, <laughs> and that's, and, the, and there it is. And it, what, what is communication? If you, uh, well, I have been in, yes, I have been in restaurants where the waiters got mad because the silverware either was used or wasn't used. Uh, it just sat there. They had no respect for the for the for the ah. dish because they they it weren't using the, the, the using the wrong spoon or whatever. They, mm. And they had no respect for the. Uh, well, no. I mean, you get there and you're hungry and you never had this stuff before, and you pick up the nearest and use it. Utensil, yeah, yeah. But there you are. That that's already a culture a culture clash and a thing and. One of the interesting, well, they're all interesting, but one of the more interesting um, characters in Hellspark is Swift Collat, who is a man who cannot lie in his own language. Um, and it makes him very upset to think about lying in another language. So he has some um, silver bracelets. Um, he's a very reliable person. He has always silver bracelets to um, testify to how reliable he is. And very, very methodical. But there are things that he can't figure out how to say in his own language because he he doesn't know they're true. Mm, Not that they can't be true, but he doesn't know that they're true and there's no way to read it. Yes, and that's part of the deal with his particular language. It says, I can tell you this with absolute certainty. I can tell you this because I... I believe this from my own information. I can, I'll, I'll tell you this. It is the information. Yeah. This information has been passed on to me by somebody who is 80%, uh, who is 80% reliable. So I consider this to be a 60% reliability since you're hearing it from me. Um, mm-hmm. And that kind of thing go, goes on in, in with, with him. And Swift Collot is not his name. It's his, well, it's his title. It's his title. Mm-hmm. And there's it's a his lo- description, I think. Right. There's a lot of that where when Tokel introduces herself, if, if it's a culture that uses titles versus right. names, then she'll uh, he'll, she'll introduce herself as the Tokel, right. uh, kind of turning her name into a title so that that person is more at ease and in, with the introduction. Right? Lele, Lele, Kalalu, the, um, mm-hmm. the shaman, is very into names. And, and that's... To- to know no, somebody's true name is int- important. And, and and very intimate, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and when you first open the book and you turn before page one, you get past the title page and then there's the, uh, what what's the word I'm looking for? Um, the, <laughs> what is the word I'm looking for? <laughs> Here he comes. The paragraph, the, the pre-chapter paragraph at the, the very prologue. beginning of the book. Oh no, well, the word no, not- 
Right, the orthography. The, the orthography, thank you. The note, the note on orthography, right. <laughs> the note on orthography where she she tells you about that character specifically. Mm-hmm. Right. It, you could read it as, well, because this character is very important to the book, and she is. But it's also a way for the author to say, here's what you're getting into. Yep. You know, I, I've given you this character, but you know, this is a title, not a name. And, and that's going to be important. And you have no context for that. So you, as a reader, you don't care about that character and their name or their title well, or whatever. But actually, yeah, it gives you right. a little. It is, it is fair it, warning. If you're exactly. looking at that in a bookstore and you go, OK, no, I can't cope with that. And you put the book down. <laughs> <laughs> and, and like, what, are, what are you talking about? Names and, and some titles. Some people yeah, surely yeah. did. And other people said, whoa. OK. What is this about? Yeah, yeah. Well, hey, that's the beauty of books, isn't it? That's it. Uh, so let me let me switch gears and talk, or I want to go back to the question of of uh, who is a human, or, or who is a human, who is a person, what what is right. sentient being? Careful. That's yes, the word I'm looking for. Yeah, yeah. Books asking this question. That's right. Yeah, that's right. It's not not the word isn't human, but what counts as a sentient being, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and let's go ahead and spoil the end of the book. Okay, so if anybody's <laughs> listening and they, you haven't read it and you're interested, go read it. Uh, because in the end of the book, the murder mystery is uh, unsatisfactorily ended uh, in a way. In, in one way, it's satisfying. <laughs> and it, prove it. Right. right, exactly. At the end, she sits in judgment and basically it comes down to, yeah, you, you probably did it, but we can't prove it. Let's move on to the more important question of whether these alien beings on this planet are sentient or not. Uh, and then it comes out that her robot assistant now is, should qualify as a mm-hmm. sentient being, this AI. Um, and boy, is that relevant now, isn't it? <laughs> uh, it's, but it's a, so this is a scene that I want to talk about in a couple of different ways, but let's kind of, Let's talk about the AI aspect of it first. Have you guys thought about this and where you come down on the question of uh, does AI count as sentient or would it, could it, like well, at some we, point? We we have, we have enjoyed um, discussing AIs um, for for many books, and mm. the question is <clears throat> is it, is in part do the current um, algorithmic programs uh qualify as ais and in fact they probably don't by our standards of an ai because well, that would be science fiction standards which of is an AI. Um, right. uh which are things that are self-determining uh unfortunately uh the forbin project you ever do you remember the forbin project i don't the, oh, um df yeah. jones isn't yeah, it df jones um <clears throat> or uh it's it's the equivalent of i'm sorry this is another spoiler <laughs> <laughs> the, the, I believe it. There, I think it was Asimov's story, where the they're trying to research the possibility of God, and they've built the world's, the universe's best computer, and they ask the question, "Is there a God?" And the answer in that story is, "There is now." Oh, <laughs> yeah, 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 I remember that now. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, um, <clears throat> but that's self. That's self determination, and. Um, the AI programs that they have now are running on, on information that's fed to them, and they're sucking information out of books and but out of they're not, sources. They're not making their own decisions. They, they really are not. 
they're they're working on um, they are they're not determining what it is they should be doing and mm. they are not in a position to term, to determine that because yes we can still pull the plug and um, right. um what we have been doing we have a sentient we have several sentient many sentient spaceships at this point we have um Jeeves, who used to be back in back in the day, a warship, an admiral, um, and and they're all people. I we had this discussion with the guy who came to talk to us from the Portland Press Herald about he ha- he was having a really hard time understanding that you could have a person who whose only manifestation was as as an image on a screen. Um, but who was still their own person, making their own decisions and deciding their own life. Um, and it's part of our main data science fiction writers to, to shake you up and push you outside of your um, comfort zone and say, think about this. Um, no, but a, friend, a, a fellow science fiction writer had, had talked to me when I had been talking about the new AIs that we have in real life. And he said, no, 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 you have to understand they don't mean what we mean when we say AI. It's right. A it's a, it, there's a difference between a sentient intelligence and a really sophisticated algorithm. Yes. Right? Yeah, it, it, yeah. They, what they, what the, the current AI programs are massive filters and you give them a question uh, and, and they may have the, the, they, the, the programs may allow for more interpretation as they go along, I, Amazon and um, and Google both have had programs for some time that could teach themselves how to play chess. Right. And you you sh- you sh- you give them the rules, and they would build from without having a whole everything built up. They built up, built into it now, so now they're forty moves ahead of a grandmaster. Um, if you if you were to try to play from in most, in many positions. Uh, and some of those understood that what they were, quote, understood, were able to refine and simplify things. And they're still doing that in many of the places where they're using AIs to determine what's in this scent or where are the, where are the likely next novas to happen? Mm. Uh, they're, they're, they're filtering through tremendous amounts of information very rapidly. So in effect, it feels like they have hunches. And, but they can't decide that they're not going to do this when they want to do something else. They don't have that, that, that kind of a thing. And it's a, it's a, it's a difficult self-determination. Yeah. yeah it, it's a difficult thing for people who suddenly hear that there's AI and it's uh, not not simply somebody wandering around in a robot suit saying, uh, "Danger, Will Robinson." <laughs> Remember the automatons? Yeah. Um, back oh geez, in the eighteen hundreds, seventeen hundreds, they made these automatons, the chess automatons, chess oh, automatons, yeah. automatons, chess playing, chess playing automatons. Um, no few of them were a guy under the table who moved the. Like with a magnet or something. Um, But some of them are actual machines. There are still some, there are still two machines in Sweden that you can go see, clockwork children. One draws and the other one is writing a letter. And they are totally Mm. clockwork. They're great. Um, So we've been trying to to make human machines for a really long time. Um, 
I and and here I am trying to decide if I'm cheering that on or you know <laughs> well, it, yeah. or uh, waiting for the inevitable demise of the human race thanks to our own creations, right? <laughs> All right, so I want to talk about that AI in a little bit different direction now, because the what what's her name Maggie, Maggie. is the name of the AI, but the the most uh, earthly name that we have in the entire book is the robot, of course, uh, and. There's a scene that points me toward a bit of morality in this book that I found really valuable uh, and interesting and wanted to get your take on it. So um, let's see. The, so Tokel has been appointed as a judge and she gets to hand down judgment with these other judges at the end of the book on whether Maggie is sentient or not, because that's going to come with all these consequences uh, for other judgments throughout the galaxy and uh, with other uh, potential AIs. Okay, so uh, let's see. Give it thought before you answer, Tokel. Such a decision would set a precedent that would be of great advantage to others like Maggie as they arise, and it would alert the rest of the bi-world judges to look for them as well. Darug was right, Tokel knew. It would help the others, but Maggie was her first concern. Maggie, what do you think? And they go on and, and they make their decision. But just that line, um, Derek was right, Tokel knew. It would help the others, but Maggie was her first concern. And it's little moments like that that I love to look for in a book that illustrate some of the, the morality that uh, the author is getting at. Um, and I, it, it's, it's going to be infinitely applicable based on somebody's personal experiences and, and what they're confronted with. But I like this idea of, um, of having a first concern as a moral starting point. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Right. And so there are going to be all sorts of conditions and, uh, and what's the word I'm looking for? Um, it, ramifications and things are going to be crazy go. restrictions and, and yeah and what exactly you but, do is extrapolate from the from the specific count right and so yeah exactly um but having a starting point uh, a first concern i love that phrase yes maggie's well-being was her first concern uh i don't know do you guys uh do you have any moral uh, lessons from this book akin to that? Or uh, <laughs> or do you want to riff on this one? Um, th this is part of what I was saying is that Jan uh, trying to say, I might not have brought it out, is Janet was running in this book, was running very close to uh, to the personal throughout the book. It wasn't just a flashy story. She was working very close to, in almost all of this, she was running very close to, how does this make, make people feel? Why does somebody feel this way? So the book is really a book that has a whole lot to do about emotion. In the case of Maggie Maggie, um, the, the point is, is that Toko has developed a relationship that she's thinking of as parental almost. Mm -hmm. um, she's feeling that she's responsible. At the same time, uh, Maggie is in fact learning and growing and achieving on her own. And, uh, and Maggie the, is immensely powerful and Toko thinks of her as her kid. 
um, which is the other, the balance of the relationship. They will both protect each other. Um, Maggie has not yet come into the full understanding of what it means to be so powerful. She just does what she does. She is a, she is a child. She's, she's learning. Which is what they decide in the end to right. and, and she is label a, her as a sentient child. Right. And at the same time, the, the, uh, it's not, it's the sentience permits the interpersonal, um, <clears throat> A long time ago, I owned, I, owned, I owned a computer bulletin board system. In fact, Sharon and I had what was the largest computer BBS in the um, in the county, in, in our county. And I got calls 24 hours a day, and we'd get calls from Sweden from time to time. But these were all call-in. These were all call-in situations. And if you if you don't have an understanding of how that worked back then, I'm sorry. It's <laughs> it was pretty complicated. And the, you, Look at you it. May not have, you may not have the Unix to understand the TP, TIT, um, et cetera, interface. But um, one of the programs that I had started using as a, as a filler, as oh, it were, that thing was, weird. was a, um, a quote unquote, was an AI. It was a program that was a chat program that could talk to you. And it would talk Sorry. to you, and we had people call up just to 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 fiddle around with it. It was the one one of the programs that they were Lisa or um, something. Yeah, I don't something. Know there were a number called. of programs being run at the time that you know. Can you tell that this is a program and not a person? And right, I lost the whole Turing and test thing. I, I had gone for an upgrade of the of the thing, and uh, it had cost what well, was pretty expensive to me at the time, like forty or fifty bucks, and put. But we'd gotten the upgrade, and I had a guy woke me out of a sound sleep because I heard him yelling. We had the, the because it was a phone call in. I had the the um, speaker on just a little bit so I could check in to make sure I was hearing the uh, the connections, the connections happen properly. And whatever it, uh, that was an eight three seven number. Um, so you could you could kind of listen in, and so I got up and interrupted and i said what's up and he cussed me out he said you've been talking to me for 15 or 20 minutes why don't you why don't you let me do this on the program on the board right now i want to go in and do this and you you're absolutely refusing and you've never refused me before well he'd been arguing with the chat program for thinking it was you for, 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 for whatever and in fact he quit the, he quit the board he was positive that he was that the the um conversational ai the conversational um program was me what makes you think that i think that because you told me i didn't tell you of course you did just go back there and <laughs> and, and there it was it was it was so and the, it, it wasn't even a very good program i mean you would type something at it and it would ask you a leading question and then you would get more information. Um, but well, and was, yeah, the white, what so makes you think like, that? Uh, yeah. So like like so much of science fiction, these AIs might be more illustrative of of uh, our intelligence level than their <laughs> intelligence <laughs> <Yeah>. level. <laughs> and so since since we had seen since we had seen that at work, uh, it helped us. I think when we came to write 
to write this kind of stuff. And uh, I can't tell you where Janet came from hers, but she obviously had uh, well, some computer background. Extrapolative computers yeah. and espabilities were both, you know, in the mix at that point. Yeah, and that's that's one of the things that was interesting to us, and it was in our mix too. Yes. The the quote unquote espabilities. Janet had a good way with words, and so she came up with serendipitous, which we have later lately used. Um, and that is somebody who either uses or uh, isn't is lucky well, in a very to be in, lucky in a very strange reason. way. The yeah. serendipitous in Hellsberg is um, much more ordered than the lux, which is what they're mm. they're called in the Leiden universe, except when they're being formalized. Um, the lux are are moved in the Leiden universe. The lux are moved by their by their gift, the luck the luck moves them around. They're basically a pawn to their own gift. Um, the character in Hellspark, who is a serendipitist, is merely lucky. She's fortunate. Um, it doesn't. It, well, it does it, sort of push her. Yes, around, it does push it? her yes, around. Okay. No, see, that's the thing. When you look at it in the long range, why was she where she why was? Why was she sick? Okay, yeah. Yeah, and so, um, so actually, a, a similar, uh, a, a similar background there. So. Uh, really, I think I think Hellspark came from that, as I mentioned earlier, it came from that period where things were. Um, there was so much stuff, and and it was all it was all new and exciting. Uh, the the whole idea of the ESP and being able to to maybe harness ESP. Well, some of the people in Hellspark recognized ESP abilities, and other ones uh, deny it. Um, and of course, you get the, um, the the one character who's who, you know I'm I'm not concerned with what you think you can do with your mind. Yeah. Um, and spe speaking of spoiling the end, um, um, but, but yeah. <laughs> so wow. there's a there, there's a, a there was a whole lot of things going on or, or around that that same time, and Janet managed to pull many of them into to one story and go boom. Well, and there's so many levels. It's it's one of those uh, stories, uh, uh, Drew McCaffrey from Inking Out Loud, he and I just read Blade of Taishal, uh, the second book in Matthew Stover's yep. series. And um, I got to the end of the book and decided if anyone ever asked me what it was about, my answer was going to be everything. Everything. Uh, what is, that was a long time ago. Was, uh, so it was uh, i had a similar experience reading this book and and steve you're kind of uh, jarring that back into my mind it's like what is this book about well Everything. oh it's only about human interaction and sapience and uh, personhood and everything right yeah uh, now i i want to we've we've got a few minutes left in this conversation and i want to take it one more different direction uh and that is naming uh, naming is a notoriously difficult <clears throat> when you're writing speculative fiction and you need to come up with different cultures and different names. And in this case, she's trying to give you lots of different cultures and their interactions. And I'll be honest, much of the time, it didn't quite land for me. You know, this character's name or this this number of, uh, of uh, inverted commas or dashes or uh, titles and all that stuff. It was pretty overwhelming, especially at first. However, there was one that I thought was absolutely genius, and that was the name of the potentially sa uh, sapient species <laughs> on this planet that they're on. Lasty, right? Do you remember the name? The Spruces. 
Is that what is that what it, uh, it, how she pronounced it? Um, actually, there were different pronunciations. They give you different pronunciations in English and in um, Dutch, and it, Dutch, comes, it, comes, right. it comes from the Dutch, and it means even even there. No, it doesn't. Okay. Even even there with the what does it mean? It's used as dream. It's used as fairy tale. It's used as this is all of these events. Like there are, there are, I can't remember it because I don't have the Dutch really. Um, there are amusement parks that you go to that are mm -hmm. spiritual. It's like they're a spiritatorium or, right. or, or whatever. <laughs> and there are, uh, and the combination of whether it's a, is this a dream, a fairy tale, a whatever. What am I looking it, at? It, it, yeah. it's, it's an imaginatorium. It's a, all of these things work work together, and um, but that's where that's where that comes from, and it's Dutch, and it's um, S P R O O O O K whatever, and J E S yes, and you broke it, and and depending on on whose pronunciation and and etc. And that was that was well done, and that was another hint, in effect, of of what was of what was going on. Because the creatures themselves, for many of the for many of the uh, quote unquote Terran background, the the human background, um, they were dreams or nightmares or uh, fairy tales. Themselves, the, those creatures were because they had so much potential. They were so different, and they were so different. Um, so that was a, a an excellent. Um, an excellent choice, an excellent... Uh, and especially if the question is, as it is, um, are these creatures who are so very, very different sapient? Are they people? They look so different from all the rest of us. Well, and it's, if we take the word, I, as you say, Steve, there are several translations that you could go with. Uh, but my favorite, and I, I, I dare say, I, my Dutch is not very strong. <laughs> so, uh, I'll, I'll be honest, uh, listeners are welcome to send me an email, please correct me. But fairy tale would probably be in the dictionary, that's your 1A. Mm -hmm. um, and then there are some other uh, subcategories maybe that you could translate it as. Anyway, if that's the case, I love considering this question of, uh, you as a reader, you're reading this science fiction story. It's about these far-flung worlds and these odd cultures and whatnot. But the central question of the entire book is, are fairy tales special <laughs> in some way that require us to treat them differently than we might, you know, other stories or other things, you know, legends and myths and things that we tell ourselves? What, what function do fairy tales uh, serve? And how do we think about them? How do we treat them? Do we give them a special place in humanity's consideration? Right? What do you, What do you think? Uh, fairy fairy tales. I mean, obviously, you're fiction authors, but uh, do you do you think about fairy tales this deeply as as much as she apparently did, or hopefully did? I think she. Did. There's a whole um, thread, a whole discussion with the computer about the difference between fiction, fiction and reality. And how much mm. can you depend on fiction to predict reality? And the computer is actually, Maggie is actually vindicated in the end by having taken advice from, from fiction, from romances, um, to figure something out. She came to the right conclusion. She used big data, 
but she came to the right conclusion, um, which gives weight to the to the value of fiction and also of myth. Um, Lily, Lily, um, Carolan, um obviously is in touch with with the mythic um, and uses that to to her own advantage and to improve the life of her patients, the lives of her patients. Uh, I I did. Um, I don't remember if Sharon talked about this the last time we spoke or not. Um, once upon a time, we were both in a writing class, and Sharon had come up with a with a story, and she turned it into the writing class, and the professor who was widely wildly not involved with the students because and, most of them were were youngsters and they were and he was 18 to 24 he was Iranian this is this is a plot point he was Iranian the he, rest of us were you know plain old Baltimore Maryland kids and um, but he had been pretty much you know running on neutral as far as we could tell and we we were getting by because we wrote and we actually wrote and we both had stories and I'd already had stories published, I think in Amazing by then. I would, but you know, we, we, were, we were able to be seen as having some craft. And Sharon brought this story in and um, it was called? It was called The Winter Concert. And we, we read it and went around in the circle and got to the professor who actually stood up. He had never done this before, he stood up. He took up a piece of chalk and he went to the board and he said, this is a wonderful retelling of Iranian fairy tale. And he began to teach the class. And that was magic. <laughs> but he said, it's a, it's a wonderful retelling of an Iranian fairy tale. And it was Sharon's like, story. It is? <laughs> Sharon's story based on listening awesome. to a piece of music. It was called The Winter Concert because a friend of mine had lent me an album by Paul Winter. By Paul Winter. And The Winter Concert was the name of the album. And I went, Oh, I wonder what that's. Oh, wait, I, I have a story due anyway, so I should write about the winter concert. And so there it was. The, the connections come from out there and they, they fall in place. And the fact that there had been a, an Iranian fairy tale uh, or folk tale about this was because it was dealing with people dealing with situations and, and the, the emotion, the emotive um, portion and not just the... Um, you know, the catapult flung the rock. And um, so, well, with some of the kids that were in, in this thing, the fact that somebody got out of the car drunk was supposed to be a main telling point. <laughs> uh, so, you know, it was a, it was a, um, a big change. And, and his he did. He just went lit right up having recognized a, a source, even though he didn't know the source was, he he was musical. He was, he, he was put on fire. So it was a good thing. Yeah, it's uh, we all we all light up when we see something in a story that we recognize that we can connect to. And th that's the beauty of having so many stories to choose yes. from, uh, you know, in the last 50, 7,500 years. Uh, I, I don't know how many millions of books have been published, all with the goal of finding the person that can connect to it. Um, well, I shouldn't say all. There, <laughs> there are many books that are. <laughs> Many books are written with other things in mind, I suppose, but uh, but the best ones are yeah. they're, they're seeking their audience, mm -hmm. right? Uh, all right, well, let's start wrapping this conversation up. I want to ask you just for your final thoughts. Let's do a little sales pitch for those who are still listening, who um, are 
intrigued, but maybe need a little push over the edge, you should go read Hellspark if you haven't yet. What would you tell a person to kind of elevator pitch, sell this book? Why should they read it? I mean, besides all of the reasons that we've already <laughs> talked about for now. We've told them. Um, <clears throat> well, for many of the people that we deal with are already our readers. Mm. And we, they, they come to us, they, um, they, they refer to us in online. They say, Leon Miller, Leon Miller, this, Stephen Sharon, whatever. Um, and the fact is, is that we have been managing to reach for some of these same points for, for about the same amount of time, uh, actually. And so for somebody who comes to, to me and says, okay, I heard you say something about this. Tell me, tell me more. Um, it's a, a case of saying, um, this is simpatico. We think that if you like what we're, what, the kind of things that we're doing, um, this, will, this will be something that will strike the chords of your heart. And um, you can't go much, much deeper than that, I guess. Yeah. No, I love that. It's the, the purpose of the Author Shelf series is to let people get to know their favorite authors or maybe some new authors to them, uh, but get to know their favorite authors in a way that's different than your typical interview, right? And this kind of fits really neatly into that, where if I'm hearing you right, Steve, um, it's on one level, a uh, recommendation. Hey, if you like us, you'll like this. E enjoy this book. But on another level, it's, hey, if you want to get to know us, get to know this book. We love yes, this book. And, and it's been influential. Is that right? Mm -hmm. That's that's true. That is true, yes. <laughs> Sharon, any final thoughts on Hellspark? Uh, Hellspark, it's a, it's a wonderful book. It has um, language. It has some um, proximity. Um, it has cultures it has a murder mystery it has the um pin of high change and we we should point out that um actually that if you're a fan of star trek star trek mm. oh yes you heard a song by she, janet kagan which is one of, the, one of the better tie-ins she she wrote star that trek. and the um she was she was in the middle of um writing hellspark her house burnt down and while she was trying to get things together, uh, David uh, Hartwell came to her and said, what are you doing now? And she said, well, this is what I've been doing. Here, here's some of my, here's what I'm trying to do. And he said, I'd like to buy this. It's not done yet, so you'll have to finish it. And she said, yeah, but nothing is working. My writing's not happening. And he said, okay, I've got a book that needs to be written. Are you interested? And she said, and Norman, Norman Spinrad came along about that time, Norman, an influential person, and, and said to her, this man is an editor. Do not, we're, in a, we're at a convention, do not make a deal with this man at the convention. And wandered off and Janet said, well, okay, we both heard Norman. And Dave said, yes. And then he brought her the Star Trek book. Um, do you want to write a Star Trek book? If, it, if the writing's not working, this has parameters and it'll get you back, mm -hmm. in, back into writing. And she agreed to do that and then realized that she had directly contravened Norman's, um, <laughs> Norman's very good advice is not to talk to this man about a book. But not only did she do that, she wrote several dozens other short stories. Yes. Uh, and right. there's more uh, Mirabili, I think Mirabili. We decided, we, we've decided it is. It's a collection. Uh, it, well, it was eventually that was the collection. And I think she had several dozen stories that some of which never made it into there. They weren't related to that. 
And uh, so it's not only Hell's Park that you can be investigating. It's it's the entirety of, of her oeuvre that she's been, she had done many things, all of them informed with, an, and we didn't manage to get to this, all of them informed with a lot of humor, mm-hmm. a lot of humor. Mm. The thing, there was uh, humor between the people. There were humor in the words chosen as you, and and uh, puns and and things and you had, if you went through seriously said let's find all the puns you could do that if you were a pun <laughs> counter but you don't have to and some of them you don't realize until two days after you read it and you said oh that was you so there's a lot there's a lot in the book <laughs> yeah well it's uh, as I say uh, one of those uh, one of those classic books about everything yes. so it's I, the, the other image that I often use is uh, Luke Skywalker going into the cave on Dagobah and he looks at Yoda and says, what will I find in there? And Yoda very solemnly says, only what you take with you. Uh, (laughs) And it's a a book like this feels a little bit like that. Um, What, what do you want to get out of it? There's probably something in here that will, well, unless it's big space battle. (laughs) Okay. So Steve let that cat out of the bag. There's no big space battles. So you won't get that, (laughs) but all right. Well, Sharon and Steve, thank you so much for coming back on and choosing this book. Uh, this was uh, one of those, I one of those things I never would have picked up for myself. It just wasn't on my radar. Mm-hmm. And boy, am I glad that I read it. Great. This is the other thing. This is my favorite thing. One of my favorite things about the Author Shelf series is reading stuff that I wouldn't have wouldn't have come across my radar. Uh, so thank you very much. And I do want to remind everybody before we go about salvage right your latest book so go check out salvage right it's gosh uh 20 number 20 something in the numbers it 20 25 25. and then you you've got another book coming out next what you have a book coming out next june called ribbon dance ribbon dance all right so everybody be on the lookout for that um for old fans and now new fans of uh, sharon and steve so guys, thank you so much again for coming on. Thank you. It's good fun. All right. <laughs> Thanks everybody for listening. I will see you all next time. <laughs>